In the early 1800s, the Second Great Awakening was sweeping America and revival services were drawing thousands of people to Christianity. One such revival occurred between September 1830 and March 1831 in Rochester, New York, and its preacher was a man by the name of Charles Finney. Finney, who studied at one time to be a lawyer, knew how to communicate with a crowd through persuasion and emotion. His purpose, as was the case of any revival service, was to convert as many people to Christianity as possible. One such method he developed was called the anxious bench. Also known as the mourner's seat or the altar call, a pew would be placed at the front of the service where it could be seen by all. As the preacher spoke his sermon, those wishing to receive salvation would come to sit on this bench. This public demonstration of boldness would then be equated with receiving salvation. In his book, Revivals of Religion, Finney would say about the method, the church has always felt it necessary to have something of this kind to answer this very purpose. In the days of the apostles, baptism answered this purpose. The gospel was preached to the people, and then all those who were willing to be on the side of Christ were called out to be baptized. It held the place that the anxious seat does now as a public manifestation of their determination to be Christians. The question is, can that which is man-made substitute for that which is instituted by God? So Tanner, I'm going to ask you to, to drop some memories of your past. When I say the words, with every head bowed and every eye closed, what does that remind you of? Uh, that was That's like, um, yeah, so literally I'd be like head down by my knees, um, you know, looking around and seeing who had their hand up and most likely, or not, maybe not every time, but me raising my hand and and then obviously what follows is the sinner's prayer yeah so i think one thing that i i remember of that is that with every head bowed and every eye closed when you say those words you are asking for somebody to look around yes. like you are literally <laughs> asking for somebody to be like well you're saying me for me to do that so there must be something that i need to look at around here uh and typically when they say that they're going to say something along the lines of if you would like to accept Jesus into your heart today, please raise your hand. And your immediate thing is like, I'm going to look around. Like, who's raising their well, hand? And I think like, it's like a barometer also for how effective the sermon was. You're like, oh, man, he got like 10 hands. Wow, this is yeah. a good sermon. And then one, and then I always, it was always interesting. It's like you look around, no one's raising their hand. Like, yes. And they like keep trying to ask, you know, like, yeah, everyone's heads are down. No one's looking around, you know. It's like, <laughs> okay, dude, just, like, move on. Like, I don't know. It's it's an interesting, right. uh, I guess, like, yeah. part of church culture. Yeah, I was going to say, there was, I do remember some specific moments where we were doing this thing that happens at the end of some sermons, and the pastor was like, raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And... I looked around and there was like maybe like three or four hands and the, the pastor was like, look, hands everywhere. And I was like, what? <laughs> that is not true. Or it, <laughs> there are not hands everywhere. It's weird when, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but they're like, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. You're like, whoa, what the heck is going on? And one thing <laughs> I think is also, and we'll probably talk about this, that is it's strange kind of part of 
church culture is you you'll usually have see, see people in the aisles counting the hands and you're like okay one two three four oh is that a hand you're like all right raise your hands as high as you can you're like don't be don't be ashamed yeah. it's like okay this is this is a little invasive yeah yeah and it's it's just a like you said it's kind of a strange christian culture thing that has evolved um it's it's evolved through you know what i would kind of quote as revivalism or things like that uh is this idea that you're going to make a commitment right now you're going to decide right now if jesus is going to be your lord and savior um in our intro we kind of talked about charles finney we talked about how he used um the anxious bench in his revival services as a way to basically get a physical reaction to i'm going to follow jesus and he made that the 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 point Mm -hmm. uh of the salvation was this this thing that's up in the front and that actually evolved into the altar call which tanner you and i have talked about before uh just having that experience um do do you have any just specific again memories about the altar call and what happens at the altar call uh more fun here let's not go into like the the theological implications what are the things you remember about the altar call yeah i mean it's like its own you have your own like rules at the altar call so like you don't get too close to people yeah. you can't like like I, there's times where you're like your foot touches someone else like oh shoot sorry and you're like scooting over yeah. and then like right. i feel also like there were times like you would wait and then like you saw someone like like a pastor like he would be coming through like praying over people and you're like okay he's like three away from me you're like okay is he gonna is he gonna t-? okay now he's touching okay he's praying right. for me and now you're yeah. like really focused in yeah. um but yeah. no it's it is uh again i, I keep repeating it. it's like it's a very interesting like you don't see this type of um activity happening in the bible and you don't really see it occurring well i mean the sinner's prayer, but also just like this, this whole subculture we've created within the church as well. Yeah. I would say the one, one instance that it does talk about in the Bible is that whenever, um, the priest would go into, um, I want to say it's the Holy of Holies yeah. in the temple. There, there is an altar in which they would spread the blood of the animal mm. in order to cover the sin. So there is an idea of the altar call, yeah. But in the sense of what it is now, that is there's there's differences there. I think the the intention of the altar call is more metaphorical that you're approaching God, mm. you know, by going to the front of the the building, I guess, mm-hmm. or the front of the service. And uh, anyways, so that's kind of some of our memory. I do remember that too. I remember also it got like sometimes really hot, and I would get really <laughs> sweaty. Um, I also remember altar calls like at the end of like camp or something like that. And the altar calls just lasted like an hour and a half and you're just mentally exhausted by the time you're done with this. Um, and I, and granted there were times that I, I do remember that like something did happen. God did work in my heart. Um, and then there were other times that I, it it felt a little manipulated. Um, and so we'll kind of talk about that a little bit. One thing I was going to add, uh, that just like popped in my head is there's also the moment before going to the altar call and everyone's kind of looking around like, okay, who's going to go first? Who's going to go first. And there's like the pressure. There's even like the, like, uh, if you're standing like on the end of the aisle, you have to like step out of the aisle to let the people go. There's just like so many different little, like things that everyone who's been to church and been in that yes. that type of environment knows exactly what we're talking about 
or the people that run up they're like come on just run up here and you're like wow uh, full sprinters are running up to the front they're um, extra safe. but anyways <laughs> i guess um so I, we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the sinner's prayer that thing we mentioned at the beginning where pastor says every head bowed every eye closed um then they ask you know do you want to accept jesus Typically, what follows that is the pastor is going to then lead them through what is called the sinner's prayer. Um, now, there are different versions of this. Every pastor is probably going to do a variation of this. Um, I'm just going to read one uh, from Billy Graham. So Billy Graham, very popular evangelist. Uh, he's no longer with us. Um, but he would do something like this at the end of his sermon. So he would read the prayer. It would be, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask you for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. So generally, this is a, I, I would say that that is a very concise prayer. It gets a lot of things right, um, which is a good thing. Like it, it does lead us to the things that we should be talking about. Um the things that I, I, I think I pull out from it is the repentance of sin. Uh, so it talks about that it recognizes that you are a sinner and that you are stuck in those sins without Jesus dying and rising from the dead. Um, and that you want Jesus to come into uh, to be the Lord over your life. Um, the phrase asking Jesus into your heart is kind of questionable for me. Um I think I know what it means or what it's intended to mean. I just think it's kind of confusing. Um, but it does get these things right. It talks about repentance of sin. It talks about belief in the life and death and resurrection, which is what we talk, talked about in the last episode. Those are the things you need. That faith to believe those things mm -hmm. is what you need to be saved. And so it gets those things right. Um, and I think, honestly, that God uses the genuineness of somebody saying that prayer. I don't think that it is necessarily inherently wrong would you agree or disagree with that i think for the most part it conveys sort of the basic um theology uh, that you would in order to you know consider yourself a christian one thing though i would say i i don't know how much i really thought about this outside of us having this conversation and looking into these you know things for this episode is that the sinner's prayer is really focused on the individual and not as focused on God. Right. And it's vo it's more like, I have sinned, I've messed up, I'm turning from my ways, I believe this, um, versus something like uh, Psalms 23, or Psalm 23, uh, that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths, paths of righteousness for his name's sake um that's very centered around god and and glorifying god i don't know if it's if it's you know something that's necessarily bad because yes you you do at the end of the day have to admit or repent and and, and realize your own inadequacy but again i think it, it can lend itself to where a lot of your faith is centered around okay what am i doing how am I doing? What is, right. what is, you know, I, you know, how am I on this, this scale that we create in our heads? Where am I at? You know, as far as, and it's less, it's more like uh, glorifying ourselves and our own 
either mistakes or triumphs versus what God, you know, has done and is continuing to do. And we mentioned that in the last episode, which was God regenerates our heart. God gives us the faith to believe Mm -hmm. in Jesus who came and died for our sins and that the Holy Spirit is helping us sin less. So all of those things is what is what God is doing. God is doing all of these things in us. And so to your point, like this prayer, while yes, it's not bad inherently, there are things that just subconsciously, when you're thinking more on yourself and less on what God is doing to get you to this place, it can be problematic. It can lead somebody to believe that by saying these words, I am claiming my salvation. I am doing the work. And it's almost like saying it in a weird way. It's like an incantation. It's like, well, if I say the words in the correct order with the right emotion and the right mm-hmm. feelings and whatever, then I'll be saved. And that's just not what the Bible would say about salvation, about faith. Yeah. Well, and, um, and kind of branching off that, I know that there and I, we so I used to go to this uh, church that would do we, we would recite creeds and things like that. Uh, I think one thing to note is that early, like in church history, like way back to even I believe in Acts, there were creeds created that the church um, that essentially was created like I believe is communicated worldwide or you know to the broader church where they were all reciting these beliefs that they all held yeah. and right. those those creeds were never meant to be something that, okay, if I say this, then that means I'm saved. No, it was more of like, we're, this is what we stand to believe in. Um, But it's never meant, it was never intended to be something that, because if it was based on, if I say this specific thing, then that, you know, changes everything. That to me seems a little cultish. It seems like, okay, I have to recite this. I have to do this one specific thing in order to, you know, be saved or whatnot. And we're not saying, so with this, we're not saying that God can't use this. Right. But something I want to bring up that we said in the last episode, which is really important, is just because God uses it doesn't mean we should use it because it could be bad form. Yeah. So you don't want to do something just because God will use it. So we talk about, you know, it's not inherently wrong. The words get generally the basic understanding. Um, but why can it be misleading? Why is the saying the sinner's prayer, like we mentioned in a service, everyone's head is bowed, eyes are closed, and you just are repeating this, these words, mm-hmm. what can be misleading about that? I think the first one that uh, just pops out to me is that in Luke 14, Jesus speaks about counting the cost right. of following him. So first of all, counting the cost, meaning what did it take for my sin to be paid for? Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that that is something that is mentioned in there about Jesus dying for our sins. So that's a portion of it. But the other portion of it that Jesus is mentioning here is also counting the cost of what it's actually going to take to follow him. Meaning in his two, his two imagery, uh, the two images that he uses is a builder always counts 
what what supplies he has before he starts building a house, a building. Or a king always assesses how many soldiers he has before he goes to war. And why I think Jesus says that is because Jesus is saying, following me doesn't lead to a quote-unquote good life. Hmm. It You're not going to find ease of life yeah. in me. You will find the greatest thing ever. You will find your purpose. You will find peace for your soul. You'll find joy unexplainable. But that doesn't mean that you're going to get material wealth. You're not going to get recognition. You're not going to get fame. And so I think he's saying, I need you to understand that what what salvation really means and what it means to take that step forward. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And I mean, if you look by and large at church history, I mean, obviously before the modern era, that it was essentially you you're accepting to not have a good life that you were essentially saying, right, I'm willing. And, and there are people even today in this, you know, around the world that by by claiming or meeting and, and claiming to be a Christian, they are essentially saying, I'm willing to die for this. And that's one right. part of the American church that I think it's it is very hard to count the cost. It's how it's hard to because we we do very we have very little to sacrifice. We don't we aren't necessarily having to um, put our we're not having to put ourselves in in harm's way. And when we do encounter uh, something that might um, you know essentially get in the way of religious freedom or uh, various you know of us being able to practice this we make it known instead of counting the costs we say well change this this is how it should be uh and and i'm not saying that you we can't do that but in the bible doesn't really talk a whole lot about as far as uh you know that that your for your focus should be on changing political yeah. um, landscapes it's more about hey if you're willing to follow me then you might have to go through some stuff yeah, I actually heard a, a sermon from Francis Chan where he he disproved the myth about once you are saved that you get a good life. Um, every He went through and showed in every book in the New Testament, it talks about suffering for the sake of Christ. Right. Suffering because you believe in Christ. Uh, and even Jesus himself says, if, he, if the world hated me first, they are going to hate you. Mm-hmm. And so to say that is saying it doesn't mean that you need to be persecuted and, you know, your life needs to be threatened. But what it's saying is if you're not living in such a way where you're rubbing people in a way that's maybe causing some friction, are you truly living out the life? So that's not really having to do with the sinner's prayer, but that just is what came to my mind. Mm -hmm. The second way that the sinner's prayer can be misleading uh, is just and this is going to be controversial. And I understand it's just not in the Bible. Yeah, and that's that's a, a thing that it's like. Well, there's plenty of things that aren't in the Bible that we still do and we believe and whatever. Yes, but when it comes to salvation, that's a really important issue. And if God wanted it done a certain way or felt like this was a way to do it, He would have probably mentioned it. And in fact, He does talk about saying a prayer, but in the way that He does it, He it's not as this like physical demonstration in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. It's actually. In, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, go into a quiet place, only be before God, and pray this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. So in that prayer, in the prayer that we're praying by ourselves in our room, he's saying he's doing the sinner's prayer, but it's not this thing that's done in front of people. And not to say that you can't do these things in front of people and it not be genuine. It's just saying the sinner's prayer, the way it's done in church is not really outlined in the Bible. Well, I mean, I, I could be very wrong about this, but I don't recall any any of the main care or um, people not characters main people in the bible uh <laughs> ever being saved through a prayer saying a prayer and then their life was radically different it was almost exclusively them encountering jesus himself and uh or hearing the gospel message or the gospel message was preached and then the spirit right came in right exactly but yeah, though, and I think even more so too. I think one thing that the center prayer does is that it it sort of plants a a false. I don't even know how to say this. That it, once you say the prayer, that your life is going to look radically different after saying that prayer. That okay, it was this point in this specific right. time I was saved. Now going forward, my life's different. There in in the Bible itself, I know there's you know times where Jesus would perform a miracle and then uh, they would go and spread the word and that was you know radical and and right. or Paul's conversion it was just boom like he was blinded and then um, you know he you know was converted but if you if you look through the Bible there's not a whole lot of uh, moments where you're like this person had this extreme moment right at, at this pinnacle point uh, you look at right. David you look at uh, Moses you look at Noah you look at uh, I mean, you, there's a number of people. Sure, there's people yeah, that they gave up, you know, where they were going to be a fisherman, and then um, they're like, hey, follow me. And it's like, okay, cool, I'll, I'll follow you. Um, right. But I think there's also this, like, false idea that salvation, and again, this might be something that I it might be controversial. I'm not necessarily certain it happens in an instantaneous moment, that it may be something where it's God's wooing you, and it happens over time, and it's gradual, just as we, like, hinted at in previous episodes that, God, the way God created and intended things to happen was through a process that happens over time. Yeah. What I, the way that I would describe it is I do think that there is a time and there's a place where your heart is regenerated, but you don't necessarily recognize that moment when it happens. And so to you, it may seem like, oh, this was a, it generally happened. I believe that there is a time where it happens, but we may not recognize it immediately, if that makes any sense. And I, I mean, again, this is me kind of speaking out of not knowing. I'm not sure, and, and maybe something I can look into is, is there anything scripturally that says that? Or is there, I mean, could there be a partial regeneration? Can there be something where, again, it's it's happening over time? I don't know. That's just something I'm kind of throwing out there. Yeah, I would say the only thing that I can think of off the top of my head is when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, that's sealing the salvation. That is... Yeah. That is the, the marker that God has given. And it's not like, well, God gives you half the spirit. True. The the other thing about the sinner's prayer that can be misleading, not that it is, but it can be misleading, is that it could lead to false conversions. What, yeah. uh, what I mean is, typically the pastor says the prayer, and once he's done, he'll say, if you said that prayer and you meant it, you have been saved. Well, that's a very vague answer. Or it's a very vague statement. And somebody could be like well i am i was crying i emotionally felt it sure that and genuinely you could have had the experience where god regenerated your heart he gave you the faith boom it happened yeah. but 
to say that just because you said it and meant it, I mean, first of all, nobody can know if they quote unquote meant it. That's mm-hmm. a really hard thing to like define. What does I meant it mean? Um, and so what you're leading them to believe is that I am a Christian because I said these words. Yeah. Versus kind of what the Bible talks about, which is the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. And when you have the Holy Spirit, you exhibit fruits of the Spirit. Or sorry, fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. Singular. Um, and so the way that you are telling if somebody is has a regenerated heart and that God has given them the faith is that there will be something that is produced because of it. There will be things that come about, which is what Tanner mentioned in the last episode in James three. It says, if you have a faith, but you don't have works, it's dead, right? There's that is not a saving faith And the word dead is really important there because we just talked about being dead in our trespasses. So what it's basically saying is your faith is no different than when you were dead right? in your trespasses. Yeah. And that's something I, I still, to this day, it rubs me in the wrong way when a pastor goes up onto the pulpit and says, last week we had 55 people accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm like, okay, so was that based on just people who raised their hands? And, and again, I... It, I, mean, I don't want to discourage and say it's not possible that you can't be saved because like Tyler said, we, you can be and God can use that, but that's not our place and it's not the pastor's place to determine, were, did you just say it because you 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 know you were pressured into it? Did you actually, do you actually believe right. it? Is this something, was it it's something in the moment was, and I don't know, I, I guess for me, I just it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, yeah I think that you know, kind of leading to this isn't the sinner's prayer that's misleading, but what can be, what can look the wrong way is it looks like the church is more interested in these like ministry stats, right? Like the church is being run as a business. So they need to be able to produce numbers to verify that they are doing what God has called them to do. Now I know that there are people that will say, well, in the book of acts, it will say that there were numbers of people that were saved. Absolutely. I'm not saying that it's not there. So even saying that you could say numbers, sure. You could say those numbers, but the the part of it that is important, the second part of that is not just stating numbers and then moving on, which is what I have a really big problem with is a lot of a lot of my growing up experience, I was told, oh, great, we had all these people saved, but we were never told what happens after conversion. Yeah. What does the life look like? Because it felt like the next thing that was said is now you just need to invite more people to come yeah. to church with you and get converted. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second. Well, but but I get that. But I still have, you know, some years left of my life. Does Is this the peak of it? Is this it? Like, is conversion it? Yeah. And so I feel like the sinner's prayer doesn't get to the heart of salvation is not the point. That is not the point. Right. And I think one thing churches do, some churches do that I believe is, is beneficial is upon if they choose to do that is they say, come meet with us and we'll get you into a course as far as like what life should look like going forward. Maybe they should present those numbers because I'd be interested in, I'd be more interested probably in that than anything. But again, I don't necessarily think it's something that needs to be publicly communicated. And uh, I don't know, again, I'm, I'm not going to go on and on about it, but uh, it, yeah, like Tyler said, it seems like it's it's more centered around, you know, oh, well, how successful is this church being? And and the, the barometer of success is how many conversions or um, people saved there are. 
Yeah, and I think you could even go back to what did what happened with Jesus. Jesus had a bunch of followers. Not just the disciples, followers like crazy. And so to you could say to his numbers like, "Wow, he is just killing it." And then he preaches a sermon about you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and everyone leaves. Yeah. <laughs> wow, his ministry must be terrible. Right. It must have died. He doesn't I mean He's left with 12 people or, you know, whatever, 20 people, whatever was left. And it's like, if Jesus didn't care about those kinds of numbers, or if he didn't care about, oh my gosh, we have all of these numbers of people coming. I think it just comes back to that quantity versus quality. Right. What quality are you giving to people? And so anyways... That's probably more, this this episode felt more like a soapbox <laughs> than uh, maybe helpful. But uh, hopefully you found something in here that was helpful. Again, you know, salvation is not something that um, you can necessarily do on your own. But as you do hear these things, if you hear, if you're getting that call, if you feel like you do want to uh, speak with God. If you do want to repent of your sins and believe that Jesus died and rose, uh, you can do that now. You don't need us. You don't need a pastor to do that. You can go right now into a quiet place and pray, pray a prayer. So either way, we're hopeful uh, that this was beneficial to you and we'll talk to you next time.